I love a fresh baked cookie. I've been who um, doesn't? <clears throat> but I've been going to the farmers market on Sundays Oof, and getting so myself fun. a giant fresh baked cookie that I didn't bake. They taste better when you don't make them. Uh, I gotta say, yeah. Well, they're also professional. They use like more butter, more sugar. Like I actually looked up a recipe. I need to figure out how uh, the Levan cookies. Mm-hmm. I need to figure out how to make those bad boys. If you haven't been to New York and haven't been to Levan Bakery, that is life changing because it's like raw in the middle. It's like gooey rawness and cookie dough in the middle with like I don't think I've chocolate. been there. You haven't? No. All right, I, just... I gotta, I gotta get you some. I gotta find it and then bring it to your house, or we can go on like a ten mile walk around New York City and go. <laughs> There's no such thing as too long a walk for the perfect cookie. Do you mean that? By the way, you're listening to Truly Darkly Creepy. I'm me. Quinlan and Posner. I'm me, <laughs> Carrie Epema. We're your hosts, you guys. Sometimes I have fantasies where we're professional about this, and we have a thing where we're like, "This is a show that tells two stories about creepy." Like I don't know, if, you know what I mean? My like, face is like no, because her I- face is like we'll never ever do that. Please shut the fuck up. I don't know. I feel like. I mean, we, listen, we have the intro song. Every time we're like, we didn't introduce our podcast, we're like, we have that truly darkly creepy yeah, intro. Okay, here's what, why I think. All I'm picturing is, what if somebody was like, you should listen to this podcast, no one ever heard it, and they tune into episode whatever, uh, 28. And, you know, it's like, do do we want to say anything about what this is, or we just want to be like, trust? Well, let's try it this time. Hey, everyone. I'm Carrie Puma. That's Quinlan Posner. And you're listening to a true crime comedy podcast. You ever heard of one? <laughs> that, all right. That was good enough, I guess. <laughs> Whatever. You have to trust us or leave. Trust us you or leave. Trust us or leave. Trust us or leave. As of right now, what you've heard is they miss each other because they're not in the same place. And they will at one point go and get cookies and gelato. I, no, you don't know. I don't mean recap what we just said. <laughs> I know that. But I'm just like imagining people listening for the if first time just and being like, this in is because truly this darkly was... creepy. Right. <laughs> like, if you're just tuning cream? in because this was on the radio for some reason <laughs> and you well, just their turned it on. headphones weren't logged in. They couldn't figure it out. If it your was, headphones were lost. ahead. For the first 20 minutes. That'd be so weird if we were constantly recapping the episode. Oh my God. Can we do that? No. <laughs> no? Oh, yeah, no, no, me neither. I don't, no, 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 no. Yeah, no, no, I don't want that either. Can't do it. Can't do it. Don't have the time, folks. Don't have the time. Don't have the energy. Don't have the will. Don't have the way. I'm not patient about it. Okay, so it's my turn to tell a story first. That's true. It is. I'm not going to tell you, you're going to find out halfway through you're probably going to find out at the beginning because this is commonly known. But the more I was researching it, the more I was like, what an apropos story of today. What an appropriate story of today. 
I got my information from Wikipedia, NCBI. I don't know what those initials stand for. Did I look it up? No, I didn't get much information. Relax. Um, History.com, Britannica, National Geographic, Smithsonian, and other baby say. <laughs> BBC One, BBC, BBC Two, BBC Three. <laughs> Wait, what is that from? Austin Powers. Thank you. I was like, why do I know that? Quinn, here's the thing about Quinn. Quinn loves Austin Powers. <laughs> Quinn loves Men in Black. Quinn's <laughs> Quinn's like film knowledge Don't is blow pretty up much my taste. Like, Don't blow yours up is my like, taste. Quinn loves an early 2000s film. Like Don't give do Quinn it. like 2000 to 2002. Quinn is like happy as can be. Happy as a clam, which why is that a fucking saying? Are clams happy? They're just organisms. They don't have any consciousness. Maybe that's why they're happy. <gasps> I get it. They get to be a part of one of the best things on earth. Spaghetti a la <laughs> And is that why you're not happy because you can't eat that? No, that's why clams are happy because they get to be a part of that. I know, but are you not happy now because you can't eat that, right? I can eat that. You can eat cooked anything. <laughs> that's why it's making noises that's why <laughs> Quinn just hit herself in the face with her headphone cord um, this is gonna be a loopy one folks uh, buckle up okay so are you familiar with typhoid fever yes have I you had are? it no not that I'm aware of. Typhoid fever is a bacterial disease. It's spread through um, contaminated water or close contact. Um, it's usually affecting um, unsanitary environments. So in the early 1900s, do you already know where the story I'm going with is? No. Really? Are you going to tell the um, story of Typhoid Mary? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Do you know it? No. You don't know it? No. Oh, it's incredible. I had a whole beginning. I had a whole narrative planned, and I'll still say it, but here's what's happening. Okay. It was usually affecting unsanitary environments. Um, and in New York, it was affecting places like the Five Points or Prospect Hill or House Kitchen. So a lot of poverty dealt with it, um, and it really wasn't affecting affluent, well-to-do families. That is, until this case. In 1900, there was a family in, oh, God, this name, Mamaroneck? Mamaroneck? Uh, I can't do that one. I know it, but I can't do it. Is Okay, tell me if I'm close. Mamaroneck? I'm like mammary gland? Mamaroneck? I think it's that. Mama- <laughs> I won't be able to do it again. In Mamaroneck, New York... There was a family there, and they contracted typhoid fever. And it was like, that's strange. That's never happened. Then in 1901, there was a Manhattan family. Members of this family developed fevers and diarrhea, and their laundress died. That's how you know someone's rich, folks, when they got a laundress. After there was a lawyer in 1901, and seven of the eight people in the household got sick with typhoid fever. Then in 1904, this guy, Henry Gilsey, who's a lawyer, his laundress developed typhoid fever, and then four of the seven servants in his household got sick. No members of the family in that situation because the servant quarters and the house were separate. Then there was this investigator, Dr. R.L. Stein. I'm just kidding. His oh my gosh, was... I got so excited. Don't I mess with me did. about R.L. Stein. <laughs> this investigator, R.L. Wilson, 
he was convinced that the laundress started the break, uh, the break, started the outbreak, but he could not prove it. So then after that outbreak in Tuxedo Park, New York, this guy, George Kassler, um, his laundress fell sick um, with typhoid and she was taken to the hospital. And that was the first case of typhoid in Tuxedo Park in a very long time. This guy um, in 1906, Charles Henry Warren, he was like this healthy, wealthy New York banker and him and his family were vacationing in Oyster Bay, New York. Am I saying Oyster Bay correctly? <laughs> I'm going to make sure I'm getting Oyster not. Bay. If I'm not, it's a Wester. I'll fucking kill someone. Oyster. He was in Oyster Bay, New York. It was their summer home. And between August 27th and September 3rd, six of the 11 members of his family contacted typhoid. Contracted. Contacted. No, <laughs> they contacted. <laughs> they contacted and they were like, yo, 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 yo. I got that typhoid. I got that typhoid. <laughs> but nobody had it. They just contacted it. They were like, typhoid, is that you? It's me from Oester Bay, New York. <laughs> Jesus Christ. So six of the 11 family members contracted typhoid. And again, this was super rare because it was an affluent part of New York. It was a summer home. People were generally clean. And this was the first case of typhoid in a while. So the landlord who rented them the house was like, ah, we're not going to get anyone to rent here if people are contracting typhoid. Right. So what he did is he called some investigators and some people and they tested. And specifically, it was either him or um, Warren himself, the lawyer, most of the articles say landlord, so I'm going to go with landlord. But they contacted this guy named George Soper. He's an investigator, and they actually call him a sanitary engineer. Serious. It's so serious. And so what happens is, is he tests the pipes. He tests the um, faucets. He tests the toilets and apparently the cesspool. I did not find out what a cesspool is, but... It sounds like we know a cesspool to be gross. Anyway, he tests all of it, and all of it comes back negative for typhoid. So the landlord is like, fuh, you. Congratulations to me. My house wasn't the culprit. But then what happens is George goes, and he's, like, looking at all these clusters of typhoid fever in these affluent areas. You know, Tuxedo Bay, Oester, Mamamoronek, all of these places that he's looking for. And he's like, what's going on? So he interviews all these people and he's able to narrow down a physical description of one woman who is the cook at all of these places. Because maids and cooks and servants and the like all left right after these outbreaks, no one had a forwarding address for anyone. Nobody knew where everyone was stationed. They just kind of followed these clusters around the New York City area. And finally, he heard in late 1906, there was this guy, Walter Bowen, who lived on Park Avenue, and two of his servants got sick, and his only daughter got sick with typhoid, and she died. By the way, there were some other deaths that I didn't mention, but people died. Um, <laughs> got it. <laughs> not a lot of people died. Most of the people just got sick with typhoid, but they didn't have antibiotics. You know, shit happens. Some folks died. Not too many on record. So when he went and looked into this Bowen case that was active and the people working there were still there, he was like, hell yeah, I'll go. And he checked out the roster of who was working there and he found a woman with the same description 
as the previous places. So he goes to the Bowen house and he discovered that this woman's name is Mary Mallon. And a little bit about Mary Mallon. Mary Mallon is born in 1869 in Ireland. This I only read one place, but it's supposedly, it, it's it's said that her mother contracted typhoid when she was pregnant with her and that Mary possibly contracted it during birth, at birth. Uh-huh. Now, she emigrated to the U.S. in 1884 when she was 15 years old, and she lived with her aunt and uncle, and she worked as a maid with families around the city, and eventually she became a cook. The cooks were the highest paid in the staff of the household, so it was kind of the coveted job. Um, To put it this way, it's $20. I think a laundress or a maid gets $20 a month, whereas a cook gets $50 a month. And it's also said, I don't know if anybody's a Downton Abbey fan, a Downtown Abbey, a Downton Abbey fan, but they call the cook Miss Mallon instead of just Mallon, right? They have um, status. They have some status in the house because they order, they order the food. There's a lot of control that they have. So, so George Soper finds out this woman is there, and he comes into the kitchen, and he's like, "Yo, Mary, I need your blood, <laughs> pee, and poo." I need your blood, urine, and stool. Whoa, he's so forward. So forward. Apparently, he states that he asked her in a, in a way that was as diplomatic as possible. But again, I don't know what is diplomatic as being like, I need your blood, pee, and shit. Um, so she took a carving knife and she chased him away. <laughs> Go marry. <laughs> um. Nope. Not today, Satan. Not today, Satan. So then he goes into her employment record and he finds out that seven of the eight families that she had worked for all contracted typhoid. Not looking good. Not looking great for her. So then he finds out that she got a side piece. She has a lover on the side. So what does he do? He goes to the lover's house and he's like, I'm going with my friend, Dr. Raymond Hubler. That's a great name. Dr. Raymond Hubler to convince her to give me samples. So she again refuses. She's like, no, you can't have my blood, shit, and piss. So um, <laughs> for her, like, she was like, oh, typhoid is everywhere. Like, she didn't even, she was so unconvinced that she had it, that she was like, it's everywhere. It's been everywhere that I'm at, and I'm not realizing that I'm the common denominator. It's just everywhere. It's a part of life. At this point in time, the idea of an asymptomatic healthy carrier had never been seen, not even the medical community. This was an unheard of phenomenon. That year, there were 3,000 cases of typhoid in New York. So it was, it, was, it was running pretty wild. It was, you know, out and about. It was having its day in the sun. And so Soper convinced the New York Health Department that Mary was the carrier and she's to blame for a lot of these 3,000 cases, that she was like this super spreader. And so she was then arrested as a public health threat and she was forced into an an ambulance by like five police officers including this woman dr s josephine baker not that josephine baker this medical josephine baker and apparently she had to sit on her to restrain her because she was fighting so much to get out of the ambulance and what was interesting about dr s josephine baker was um she herself lost her father to typhoid and so she, she has some skin in this game. She has some skin in this game. She has some germs in this game, if you will. And it was her mission to promote 
um, preventative medicine. She actually became the first woman to earn a doctorate in public health. Fascinating. Anyway, actually, Josephine Baker had said um, that in the end, it was Mary's tragedy that she didn't trust us. There was seems like a lot of lack of communication and not convincing. So anyway, they restrain Mary Mallon and they bring her to the hospital. And from there, they forcibly take her samples. Oh, shit. Really, really bad. That's and so she intense. wasn't even allowed for four days to use the bathroom to get up and go to the bathroom. They basically like strapped her to a bed and kept her there while they did tests on her. Oy. They found a massive amount of toy, toy foid. They found a massive <laughs> typhoid. Oh my god! They found a massive amount of typhoid cells in her gallbladder, in her stool. So they concluded that it was her gallbladder. And at that point, they were like, you know, you can remove your gallbladder. And she was like, hell no! That surgery is super fucking dangerous at this time. So many people die from doing it. I'm not fucking doing it. And also, she's like, I don't believe you. I'm not a carrier of the disease. I'm not sick. This is not possible. Right. But, of course, later they were like, it's her intestinal tract. It's in her bowel muscles. Basically, they were just like, it's in your stool, so it's got to be somewhere in there. So, at this point, she confesses to never washing her hands. But that's not super rare at this time. Keep in mind, during the Spanish flu in 1917, many people still didn't wash their hands. Before the vaccine in 1917, it's important to note, the thing that really curbed the growth of the Spanish flu was personal hygiene and wearing masks. That sounds familiar. And I didn't realize this, but apparently it's the germ theory of disease is the theory that germs are what cause illness and that washing them gets rid of germs. But I never knew it was called the germ theory of disease. Um, But this wasn't fully accepted in commonplace. And again, this is why it was usually inhabiting impoverished areas where there wasn't clean water and there wasn't you know, a lot of clean cleanliness. So what am I saying? I like, no, the I like th- that. You like you that? Doubled there wasn't down. a clean, there, there I wasn't clean down on the cleanliness. Clean. That's going to lead to problems. There wasn't clean cleanliness. And what's important is an investor investigates. So I think we just need to make sure, dear readers, that you know. Now you might ask, how could she possibly spread this disease? Because what happens is, is with the bacteria that causes typhoid, um, usually cooking the food gets it out of there like it, it it's not totally past however here's the thing about mary mary mallon was like super good at making peach ice cream like really good it was her favorite dessert it was all of her clients i don't know if i could call it that it was all of the people who she worked for's favorite dessert so she would constantly make peach ice cream which you don't cook and you handle with your hands the peach ice cream is what did it in. It's like it's like in the kitchen. It was Mary Mallon in the kitchen with the peach ice cream. That Got is it. the clue game of this. So in 1907, Mary is sentenced to quarantine in North Brother Island in New York City. North Brother Island is um, – there's a pair of small islands right outside um, the Bronx – on the East River. So it's between like the Bronx and Rikers Island. Is this small, it's like 20 acres of land. And they had this one-story cottage set up on this island and they took Mary and they made her go there for three years. Oh my God. Don't worry, it gets worse. So while she's there, she has to give stool and urine samples three times a week. 
And a lot of this was because she did not want to stop working as a cook, right? That's how she was making all of her money. Um, she didn't have a place to live. She usually lived in the quarters, in the servant quarters. And so she didn't really have any place to live. She didn't have any money. She was really impoverished. She was just on the verge of homelessness and she just wanted to keep working. So Soper at this time then visited Mary on Brother Island and was like, listen, Mary, I got a great idea. I have this book idea that's going to be about you, about how you're uh, a healthy asymptomatic carrier of typhoid. And we're going to call it Typhoid Mary. And the good news is, is I'm going to give you part of the royalties. Well, Mary, who still did not believe she was a public threat, who still was like, I am not a fucking carrier of this. She was like, fuck no. She locked herself in the bathroom and waited there until he left. So she said in a letter to her lawyer, she said, I wonder how this said Dr. William H. Park would like to be insulted and put in the journal and call him or his wife Typhoid William Park. She was just pissed. I don't know why William Park is the name and not Soper. That detail might be wrong. Either way, she was pissed. So some in the medical, some even some in the medical, it was pretty controversial that they had quarantined her for three years. And some people in the medical community was like, this isn't right. This isn't right. We cannot take her and put her away and have an incomplete isolation. Against her will. Um, they, exactly. They taught, they, they were advocating for teaching Mary to manage her illness and to, um, quit making and peach she, ice cream and and just cut it out with that damn peach ice cream or at least like cook it first and then freeze it and let somebody else mix it up before you serve it to your guests she had a nervous breakdown while she was there and in 1909 she tried to sue the new york department of health the case was denied and it was closed by the new york supreme court so she was trying all these recourses to find her freedom again she said she was a guinea pig. She had to give samples, like I said, three times a week. In, for six months, she was refused an eye doctor. One of her eyes were paralyzed, and at night she had to bandage it up, and no doctor would come and visit her. However, out of the 163 stool samples, 120 of them were positive for the bacteria that causes typhoid. So she was quarantined for two years and 11 months. Guys, if you're complaining about three months of quarantine, imagine feeling like Mary. Bad news. She said was a serious quarantine. Yeah. Um, I say yeah because we ain't over. Um, so after two years and 11 months, the New York State Commissioner of Health decided that the disease carriers should no longer be kept in isolation. But she had to sign an agreement that said that she couldn't work in a kitchen, um, she couldn't work as a cook, and she had to take steps to stop the spread, like washing her hands and things of that nature. So when she got out, she became a laundress and was only making $20. She was making less than half of what she initially made. And at one point, she hurt her arm and had to stop working for six months. So she became pretty desperate and wanted to make a decent wage again. So she changed her last name, not changed formally, but because people knew her as, quote, Typhoid Mary, um, she had to go and use a fake name like Mary Brown, but agencies started recognizing her and they wouldn't give her employment. So she started to work for restaurants, hotels and spas. And coincidentally enough, wherever she worked, typhoid followed. She changed jobs very frequently. So Soper, who knew what she was up to, had heard about these outbreaks. He couldn't find her because she was using a different name. In 1915, math is four years after it. 
no, 1909, 1910. No, when did she get out? 1910. In 1910, so five years later, she was working at the Sloan Hospital for Women in their maternity ward as a cook in New York City. She infected 25 people and two of them died. And so at this point, Soper was called and he identified Mary from the servant's description and her handwriting. Mary? So Mary damn Mary. Mary fled, but the police found her when she was taking food to her friend in Long Island. What I would like to know is if they tested that food that she was taking, because what if they saved her friend from typhoid? So she was then quarantined again in 1915, in March 1915, back in North Brother Island. And that one-story cottage, I bet she walked in and was like, oh, you again. <laughs> I bet she was peeved. In 1918, she was able to take one-day trips out into the city. At a day, But again, with not with any regularity. In 1925, 10 years later, she's still in quarantine. This um, Dr. Dollar, Dr. Alexandra uh, Plavska came to North Brother Island um, for an internship, and she created a lab in the second floor of a chapel in the area. And she hired Mary as a technician, where she cleaned bottles and did some recordings and prepared glasses for the pathologist, which I think is just a little ironic that she was like working for her captor in some way, mm-hmm. you know, and by cleaning them, which just again feels ironic to me um in 1932 she someone found her in her house she had a stroke that left her body half paralyzed oh awful six years later no relation to the fever no relation in her system she never had yeah she had no yeah she was completely healthy there was no yeah i never it never came up that it was related but i would be surprised if after her entire life of this happening (laughs) that like all of a sudden it was like she stroked out that just doesn't feel totally probable to me it probably was from a lack of socialization and communicating to be honest like if i were to put anything it probably was the isolation that did her in so 1932 someone found her at her house She was half paralyzed, and she spent the next six years of her life in a hospital on Brother Island, on North Brother Island. And in 1938, she died of pneumonia at the age of 69. She spent 26 years. Was that right? Yeah. She spent, I want to make sure I'm getting that right. Hold on. A total 38. Why can't I do the math? 28 years. Wait, 10 to 32 is I'm keeping this in, by the way. Don't. Please don't. My math is so bad. I just want to make sure I'm getting it right because I don't know if we count her six years. Carry the three. (laughs) The two. She spent two years and 11 months at the first one. And then she spent... Mary was brought back into quarantine in 1915, not 1910. So I was doing the wrong math. So I was correct. Or it was 26 total years in isolation. It's a long time, man. It's the worst thing I've ever heard. No Netflix. She had no Netflix. She had barely any friends. It says she died without having any friends. Um, but she was very religious, which apparently helped her get through some of her harder moments. Um, she was cremated, and she's buried at St. Raymond Cemetery in the Bronx. Nine people attended her funeral. There's some claims that in her postmortem, in her autopsy, that they found 
that her gallbladder was like full of typhoid cells of the of the bacteria that causes typhoid. But there are other people that are like, that's not true. That's an urban legend. There wasn't any autopsy on her body. So a total of three deaths, the two in the maternity ward and the one um, the one at the lawyer's house, his daughter. Three of them have been attributed to Mary. Three deaths, I believe she infected like 32 people or something. Um, however, the exact numbers aren't known because it is a contagious disease. So some believe that it could be, you know, 50 deaths or so. At the time, there were, she wasn't an anomaly. There were other healthy carriers of the disease. One was Tony Labella, who was an Italian immigrant. He apparently caused 100 cases and five deaths. Um, there was this guy called Typhoid John. He was an Adirondack guide. He effect, infected 36. There were two deaths. Alfonsi Cotis, who was a restaurateur and a bakery owner, or a bakery owner, um, and there was no confirmed, but apparently he was a healthy carrier as well. At the time of Mary's death, New York officials identified 400 other healthy carriers. No one else was confined. It was only Mary that was confined. What? Yeah. Apparently, people think that it was because she was female. She was Irish, she was uncooperative, and she was without a family. What a bag of bullshit. Totally. And she really got the short end of the stick, huh? Totally. Beyond the short end of the stick. This became, this case became a landmark in in the balance of preventative public health and personal rights. Because how do you weigh that? How do you, and I think we're honestly looking at that right now. That's what we're seeing all these protests for people sort of weighing the public health implications with your personal liberty. So now Typhoid Mary lives on in the name, but people refer to Typhoid Mary. I think even now they don't want to be considered a Typhoid Mary, which is being a healthy asymptomatic carrier and a super in a super spreader. And whether you're knowing or unknowingly, you spread the illness. There's even a Marvel comic book villain named after her called Typhoid Mary, um, who's a female assassin with a vicious temper. And then I'll finish with this because I think we could all use a little bit of good news is you might ask, what happened to North Brother Island? What happened to North Brother Island? I'm glad you asked, Gwen. It became a bird sanctuary. Huh? Anyway, that's the story of Typhoid Mary. Don't be like Typhoid Mary. Wear a mask. So it's the island of poop. It's the island of poop, but you can see the old hospital that was on North Brother Island where she lived the last six years of her life. It would kind of, you know, I would I would actually love to go explore that. We, That's a fun, that would be a fun field trip to go and explore North Brother Island. It's 20 acres. Like, it's pretty small. It's off the coast of the Bronx. It's like right off the Bronx between Rikers Island. I'd rather go to North Brother Island than Rikers Island. I'm going to tell you that right now. Add it to the list of uh, spooky spooks to tour yes god in the deep 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 state future deep state um, future deep state future we should offer our dear readers the option for like we basically take them on a tour like if we ever get to the point where we can do that how fun would that be we would take them to like that place that the preppy killer was in we take them to north brother island we take them to obviously get a levan cookie and you know the best part (laughs) We don't talk during the tour. We just make them listen to the episode. Like, <laughs> like, like tours so at dark. museums where you just buy the headset. Like, they and just might, follow us. And we just us. sit in front of them. And, and we don't say like, anything. Traffic like, direct them. <laughs> I 
Love that idea. Got it. Love it. Thank you. I didn't you. know about that crazy quarantine of hell. 31 years. 29 years. 28. Just insert whatever the correct time is. 40, 50, 40, 39, 38. <laughs> just insert the number between years. <laughs> Do you know what? Um, guess what my story's on. You Pray can't tell. guess. Denver International Airport, DIA. I am so excited, but clearly someone really wants to go back to Denver. I know, Did right? you ask your mom, were you like, Mom, what are creepy stories of Denver? And she's like, No, oh. this is pure coincidence. Wild. Well, I can't wait to hear about Daya. I've been to the Denver. That's I, that's, that's the only airport I've been to. It's beautiful. Colorado, Colorado's beautiful. Thank you. You're welcome. I And I stand by what I said. I don't think it's the Midwest. Well, that remains to be seen. Do so, you think it's the Midwest? Yeah. But I do. I think like, like Indiana, Michigan, Wisconsin, people are just like nicer. <laughs> like I feel like Midwestern. Like you don't think I'm you, nice I, enough to be a Midwesterner? All right, that's fair. Uh, yeah. I got my information from the DenverChannel.com, which um, there was a great article by Stephanie Butzer. Butzer? Sorry, Stephanie. Might be Butzer. The Guardian, the Denver Post had an article by John Wenzel that I used. Oh, good old John Slins Wenceslas. Uh-huh. Um, and there was Mental Floss, Uncover Colorado, and there was a Westward article by Jared Jakang Mar called DIA Conspiracies Take Off. And I liked that one a lot, too. Can we just ask what was the what was the last publication called? Westward, not Westworld. <laughs> I knew it. You thought it was Westworld? No, no, no. I thought it was Western because you're in the West. You're not in the Midwest. I'm just saying. <laughs> oh, I'm gonna kill you. <laughs> so when I grew up uh, in Denver, we flew in and out of Stapleton Airport. That's now like housing and restaurants and shops and stuff. Um, DIA, Denver International Airport, opened to the public on February 28th, 1995. What a fun birthday gift for you. That's eight days after my birthday. I know, but I was saying it was February. I mean, gifts sometimes are late and delayed in the mail. I'm not one of those assholes that celebrates birthday month. I am not either. (laughs) Don't yell at me. (laughs) Um, The airport opened a year later than promised, and they were too... Billion dollars over the original budget. Also, remember, like when the airport opened, that it was really exciting because this was um, obviously pre 9 11 and you could just go to the airport and park and walk around. And people did that because the airport was a big fucking deal. Like they built this airport and it had really cool art in it and restaurants and it was beautiful. So I remember um, people would go there, like classes would take trips there. It was a thing. Like, everyone wanted to go visit the airport. That's so bizarre. I've well, it's never one of the best of airports in the U.S. It's a big deal. So when it got built, everyone was like, what? And everyone went there. Mm. The airport is 53 square miles. And I don't know if you've ever seen a picture of it, but the outside's really pretty, too. It kind of looks, um, it's like a tented almost structure, and it looks like, it's supposed to be, like, reminiscent of, I think, snow-covered mountains. No, I've only transferred flights there, so. Oh, it's beautiful. Well, so since opening, and actually, like, even prior to opening, there have been all these conspiracy theories that surround it 
And I could not be happier about that. That's like the only <laughs> thing that takes a great airport and makes it even greater. Um, <laughs> there are even conspiracy theorists that have nicknamed it Area 52. <gasps> yeah. So people good. are like, this is definitely like one thing, one common thread is that people say that it's the headquarters for something sinister, but it's kind of disagreed upon what that would be. But there's all kinds of mysteries. One thing that people point to is that the runways are shaped like swastikas. If you, The runways are shaped like a swastika. If you take an aerial photo of it, so they're like, oh, maybe it's the headquarters for neo-Nazis. But actually, I looked at a bunch of pictures, and it kind of just looks like a garden pinwheel or something. <laughs> it doesn't look Wait, like I wanna that. I want to see. I want to see. It doesn't look like... I don't think it looks like a swastika. I think it looks like a pinwheel. Anyway, some claim that in 2007... 14 commercial aircrafts were there and they all spontaneously had their windshields shatter. So like what force is at work, right? So they're like, oh, it was like this electromagnetic pulse. But if you look into actually electromagnetic pulses, they only affect electronic items. They wouldn't damage glass or plastic. So that doesn't really make sense. Um, and they investigated it, and they think it might have just been really high winds and cold temperatures. Mm. But still, it's really weird. Nine of the I 14 want... planes that that happened to were had just landed. One had just taken off, so I guess it was in the air, and four were at gates. But still, for that to happen, I wonder if they were like them that's at once. bizarre. And I wonder if like if they were all at the same like. This is such a weird tangent, but my my dad's car, when he drives over 80 Mm -hmm. at a certain angle and the wind is going, there's like a through the window. Like you can hear the wind squeaking through the window. Yeah. Yeah, And you can't recreate it because you're technically not allowed to go over 80. Sorry, dad. And I wonder if all of the windshields were like facing the right direction and just like had the the perfect gust of wind came. Totally. And the thing is, Denver also just has really high winds and like an arid climate with. There's lots of rocks also, like, so you feel like, I don't know. It's also really common for Denver for you to get, like, your windshield cracked in your car. It's, like, a common. Um, Let's talk about what's under the airport. First of all, underneath the airport is approximately 470,000 square feet. So a lot of people are like, that's a lot of space to be underneath the airport. Yeah. And why during construction would they excavate such an enormous area if they weren't going to use it for something specific? Do they think that there's like a nuclear warhead at this? I bet that's... No? They think there's bunkers. The Denver Post reporters were given a tour of the facilities and they're like, nothing's weird. Actually, it's a workplace where there's like a thousand employees that work. There's two really long tunnels that are like 7,000 feet each. And they were meant to be used to transport passenger luggage around the airport. But the part that people are, like, suspicious about is the tunnel system was built to be a baggage carrier. And it doesn't work. And it never worked. And it cost a ton of money to construct it. And it's never worked, which was one of the reasons they said opening was delayed. So it's just like if you spent all this money on this baggage system. And it doesn't work. Like, uh, did you really spend it on that? Do you? Are you saying it doesn't work because it's 
something else and you don't want to tell us. Right. Weirder still is there are buildings underneath DIA. So I've heard tell that supposedly during construction, there were five buildings that were supposedly done wrong somehow. And so they were like, oh, we can't use these. But instead of whatever, like exploding them or dismantling them, they buried them. And we know this because there were some construction workers that told people because they thought it was shady. But the construction worker that has said that has never come forward. We don't have it in print. So Mm -hmm. it's all sort of hearsay. But on that subject, there was a lot of turnover of the staff during construction, probably because it took so long. But also some people are like, oh, they didn't want any one company or one group of people to have the whole picture. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like safety and only assembling part of it and not seeing the greater idea. Um, oh, could you imagine? Could you imagine finding out like you're building a horrible, horrible thing, but you've just been like fucking Lucille Ball on the conveyor belt with the chocolates and you yeah. realize like you're building an A-bomb? Crazy. I would not love that. Well, and like buried buildings just, that seems really suspect. Um, Because if anything, we know that burying stuff is, if nothing else, a metaphor. But for what? (laughs) 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 Mm -hmm. Sure, sure, sure. So the underground tunnels, a lot of people are like, they lead to the North American Aerospace Defense Command, or NORAD, which is in Colorado. It's like 100 miles south of the airport in Colorado Springs. So they're like, oh, the tunnels go straight to there, and it's they're in cahoots. Hmm. Either way, tunnels are suspicious if they're not being used. Um, we've said it once, we'll say it before. Tunnels are suspicious. Careful. Beware your own tunnels. Not good. Not good. In 2016... Uh, DIA started to offer tours of the underground tunnels to the public. That is interesting because you're like, oh, they were either like there's nothing to hide legitimately or everyone's talking. So they're like, let's clean this up and make it look like there's nothing to hide. Okay. And let's put all these conspiracy theorists to rest. Hmm. Okay. I don't know. Um, A lot of theories are like there are definitely some underground bunkers down there and they're for the apocalypse and all the rich people are going to get to go in the bunkers. Did you say apocalypse or apocalypse? Apocalypse. Because I'm really not like on the such intimate like... terms with the apocalypse that I would ever presume <laughs> like to call like, it apocalypse. And they would be apocalypse. <laughs> well, all the conspiracy theorists pretty much are like, there's bunkers. It's just that they can't decide who gets to use the bunkers. So mm-hmm. some say it's definitely going to be rich people when the apocalypse and like powerful people get to be there when the apocalypse happens a lot of people say it's for aliens some say that it's the new order or the illuminati that own the bunkers Mm. and there's if you go underground they've also seen drawings of aliens on the wall down there maybe it was like a drawn um selfie because they don't have cameras (laughs) See? Aliens. They're just like us. <laughs> it's the Kim Kardashian of aliens. 
I love, I feel like it's like, I feel like it's one of the construction workers that's like, you're not telling me what I'm building? Well, I'm going to make my own shit. And they'll be like, do, 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 draw a little alien. <laughs> that's true. Well, you know, do, the do. airport workers, um, when they started giving tours, some of the airport workers wear like alien masks and like jump out. <laughs> it's not funny on the that, tours. I actually love that. I'm wondering if that's going, if they're going wait, there's all these conspiracies. Let's capitalize on it. Let's give tours. Well, they don't mind it. We'll talk about that later. But um, my favorite theory is that the underground layer is run by lizard people. And these lizard people can transform to blend among us when they're above ground. Um, Are you a lizard person? What? Are you a lizard person blending in? I would never tell you. You know that I would never tell you if I was. Damn. What a pointless question. In some circles, they're referred to as reptoids. Fun. Yep. And there's some like blurry footage of lizard people that have appeared on conspiracy websites. Um, like picture like Bigfoot. You know what I mean? Like, Oh, my God. I form- love that. I know. Former BBC media personality David Ick, for example, wrote 20 books that's crazy. In his quest to prove that the world is controlled by an elite group of reptilian aliens known as the Babylonian Brotherhood. And do you know who's part of the Babylonian Brotherhood? If George it's not Steve W. Bush, Bush Queen Elizabeth being... II, oh. Chris Christopherson, and get ready for it. Steve Buscemi? The Jews. <laughs> <laughs> You guy, pick a lane. If the if the airport's supposed to look like a swastika, the Jews probably aren't going to reside there. Like, don't be a dumb dumb. You're right. Oh. So wait, Queen Elizabeth, Chris Christopherson. Are you the the famous music producer, right? Chris Christopherson, George W. Bush, and the Jews. What a fucking ragtag dream team that sounds like. And also, aren't they also members of the Illuminati? Like, pick a. Uh, this no, pay attention. They're members of the Babylonian Brotherhood, obviously. <laughs> David Ick that wrote that says that DIA is one of the home bases for them. And he says that one of the ways that he can prove this is that it's a fact that's revealed in some of the murals in the airport. We'll talk about the art in the airport in a minute. But first, <laughs> I just need to tell you that American wrestler turned politician... Jesse Ventura, mm. which used to sound weird, but now that our country's run by a spoiled patty melt that used to have a reality TV show, it's like nothing's weird now. Anyway, <laughs> in January of 2010, he brings his uh, a conspiracy theorist to DIA with him to chat about what's going on because he now has a TV show called Conspiracy Theory with Jesse Ventura. So he takes this conspiracy theorist there. And I haven't watched this show because you can't smoke weed when you're pregnant, but I will watch it in my future. <laughs> anyway, the theorist explains to Jesse that the space below the airport is going to be used for uh, the world's elite as a shelter when the 2012 apocalypse, as predicted by the Mayan calendar, happens. So... I wonder are we just, how that guy are we feels all now. reptoids? Are we all reptoids? Did the apocalypse happen and we're just all reptoids? Yeah, I slept through it if it did. Mm-hmm, same. And he's also like, oh, these murals in the airport done by this artist, Taguma, 
show evidence. There's like a child depicted holding a Mayan stone tablet. And there's evidence that it's about this airport's all about the Mayan predicted apocalypse. So basically, in 2012, everyone will die except the New World Order. Gotcha. I think the trouble with that theory, not name, to overstate name the it. One, name the one trouble with that theory. I want, I challenge, what's the one trouble with that theory? We be here. Okay. What'd you say? We be here. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think the Mayans predicted 2020 to be the actual apocalypse? It feels like it. It does. It feels like it. it feels like it's but the apocalypse. The one problem with that is it's 2020 right now. So I keep breaking up the art, so I feel like I should tell you a little bit about it. Please do. Um, so there's all these wild murals in the airport that this guy Taguma did, and they're undeniably weird. Like, if you look at them, you'll be like, these are weird. Um, <laughs> the one that I'm the most creeped out by is, like, um, part of a two-painting set that's called Children of the World Dream of Peace. And in the picture, in the one I'm picturing, <laughs> the there's, like, a... you said it. <laughs> Children of the World Dream of Peace. <laughs> Children of the they're Corn undeni- Dream of Killing. <laughs> they're undeniably weird. Like, if you look at them, you say, these are weird. <laughs> <laughs> you'll say that's that you, you'll say that exact thing said. though <laughs> you will say it um one of them is a city that's crumbling like turning to rubble in the background and then in the center there's a soldier wearing a gas mask holding a rifle that has like a knife coming out of it in one hand and then in the other hand he has a machete and he's holding it above sleeping children while he stabs a dove This is a huge mural in the airport. The Guardian describes the murals as creepy images of man-made environmental destruction and genocide. That's such a bizarre thing to put in in an airport. In an airport. That was was $2 billion over budget. That is arguably the destruction of nature by man. Like, that is... That's such a contrarian political... Well, Taguma, the artist... It says so so first of all they're not as like doom laden as we're trying to say they are there's a it's there's a four-part series and it has a happy ending so some of the paintings have like a sad note but it's supposed to be a happy ending and Taguma, the artist says the first part of the environmental mural is about the ways humans destroy nature and themselves through destruction and genocide but the second part is about humanity coming together and rehabilitating nature and reviving compassion. So mm, I like that. We could use some of that right now. He and he has been like picked on. People are like, why'd you do this? Did someone tell you to do this? Who made you paint it? And he's like, they let me paint whatever I wanted, and this is what I painted. Um, but people come after him as like, he knows, he knows, he's been silenced. There's also a dedication placard in the airport or like stone, and it was created to commemorate the opening of the airport. It has a Freemasons logo on it, and it was paid for by two Freemason Grand Lodges in Colorado, as well as something called the New World Airport Commission, which creeps people out because there's very little information on what the New World Airport Commission is. Like, who are they? So it feels like it's a secret society. Mm-hmm. Um And a DIA spokesperson said they were the name given to a group of local politicians and business people who helped fund the airport's construction. 
still kind of mysterious, right? For sure. The date of the airport's dedication is March 19th, 1994. If you add those numbers together, 191994, you get 33, which is the highest level one can achieve in Freemasonry. That's not taking March into March is 03. That's 36. You can't take everything into consideration when you do math. You of all people should know that. (laughs) (laughs) You're not wrong. So underneath the like big stone thing I just explained Mm -hmm. is a time capsule that is they're going to open it in 2094. And they say that it contains coins and a signed opening day ball from Coors Field Mayor Wellington Webb sneakers and a few Black Hawk casino tokens and some other items. But obviously, a lot of people are like, no, it doesn't. What do they think it? I don't know what they think it has in it. Probably varies with what cuckoo camp they reside in. So there's strange markings all around the airport that people are like, that's alien language, or maybe it's lizard language, but it's actually Navajo language. <laughs> characters and references to the other airport artists people are idiots (laughs) there's also you know what it is they just made weird choices like they have at the baggage claim gargoyles overlooking the baggage which i think they were like this is fun because it's like they're protecting the customer's bags but it's just creepy So people weird. are like, well, that's weird. Also, if you're going $2 billion over budget, are you maybe should you start cutting costs? Like maybe we don't do the gargoyles at the baggage claim. Hmm. How about that idea? Totally. Not a bad idea. So one of the weirdest pieces of art is not in the airport at all. Have you ever heard of Blucifer? No. No. I didn't think so. Okay. So outside the airport, when you're driving to the airport or away from it, you see... A 32-foot-tall, 9,000-pound sculpture of a blue horse. Um, It's like a Mustang. Oh, yeah. Everyone in Denver nicknamed it Blucifer, and the reason they call it Blucifer is because it has glowing red eyes. And at night, like, the eyes are lit, and it looks terrifying. (laughs) And people are like, oh, it was built as a nod to the four horsemen of the apocalypse, because it's, again, supposed to be... A doomsday sort of situation. Yes. Also, though, about this horse, I just want to tell you that it's anatomically correct. So. There's a big horse dong. <laughs> yeah. There's a big horse cock and balls. <sighs> anyway, the real name of the artwork is the Blue Mustang. What else is creepy about him is two years before he was completed as a work of art, a portion of the horse fell on the creator, Louis Heim. Jimenez. I hope I'm saying that right. Jimenez. I don't think Jimenez. Jimenez? Yes. You say it. Jimenez. Yeah. It severed an artery in Lewis's <gasps> leg and he died. So Lucifer killed his creator. Oof. Dark. That's dark, Lucifer. Lucifer. That's dark. It's dark. So there's um, lots of the people that are into DIA conspiracies really like this 1996 KSCO radio interview with Alex Christopher. Her interview was republished all over conspiracy websites. When I say published, I mean the transcript of the interview. And a lot of people will say that Alex Christopher is a man and that Alex Christopher is dead. And neither one is true. Alex Christopher is a 65-year-old woman and is alive. (laughs) 
When she was younger, though, she was really interested in the New World Order back in the 80s. And she wrote this book and had lots to say about aliens and globalist agenda in her book. And her travels to talk about her writing bring her to Denver in the mid-90s because she's going to talk about some of her theories at the Denver for the Global Sciences Congress Conference. And when she's in Denver, she starts hearing about all the hokey pokey stuff about DIA. And you put one in the money and one go. hand out and you turn it all around and that's what it's all about. Yeah. Correct. But she's like, what is it all about? I want to go to DIA and figure it out. And she meets some connected people so she can get like a sweet ass tour of the underground. And she's like, oh, it's really weird down there and spooky. I want to go back with a fellow conspiracy theorist, Phil Schneider. And anyway, a guy calls her and says... He found an elevator at DIA that leads down to a base that has alien-operated concentration camps. So she writes about that in her next book. And then, after writing about that and going on this tour, this is where things get fishy. Phil Schneider, the guy that her friend that she brought on the tour, dies suddenly. And they declare his death a suicide, but all the conspiracy theorists don't think it was. They think he was killed for what he saw and what they knew. And Alex Christopher, then by association, is obviously going to be in danger. She gets totally spooked and gets fearful for her safety and her family. And she totally shuts up about DIA to protect herself. And she kind of just vanishes from the public eye, which adds all this fuel to the conspiracy fire because they're like, who shut her up? Who's telling her not to talk? I hope when I die, every conspiracy theory is just, I, I'm, I find out if it's real or not. That's got to be the best part about dying. That's got to, I mean, that to me is like what we want. You know, that, wow. That's wow. the biggest wish. Every biggest time I blow out a candle on a cake. Just tell me one conspiracy theory. Nope. <sighs> every time I'm like, who killed John Bonet? And then I blow out the candle. <laughs> I need to know. Um. In 2016, so you'll love this about DIA. This is my favorite part. In 2016, DIA, first of all, they decide to have like a tiny museum style exhibition in the airport that honor the notable conspiracy theories and they call it um, Conspiracy Month. And they've also had uh, fundraisers and events like a conspiracy themed costume party. And they did a free Close Encounters of the Third Kind screening. And Wait, a lot I of love the, that. A lot of the conspiracy theorists say that the coordinates for the alien landing in that film are DIA's location. They're not. They're actually like 51 miles uh, northwest. But it is interesting. So then, really recently, in 2018, Whoa. they needed to remodel some of the airport. And I remember this. You would walk through DIA while they were remodeling. And they had signs. You know how they'll like be like, we apologize for our appearance, like that kind of thing? They had those signs, but they were so funny. They did one that had a yellow hard hat with an Illuminati symbol on it. And it said <laughs> construction or cover up. And like they had another one that had a lizard wearing a suit that said, what are we doing? And then they wrote a list and it said, adding amazing new restaurants and bars, building an Illuminati headquarters. And remodeling the lizard people's lair. That's so incredible. And then one had like Lucifer on it and said, are we creating the world's greatest airport or preparing for the end of the world? Oh, my God. Yeah. So they lean in. 
I think that's what you got to do. If there's a conspiracy about us, let's lean in hard. Just let's make that vow right now. To be clear, like they, I think they like the lizards and the aliens. No, I don't think they lean in or even talk about the idea that there's like a swastika (laughs) as the runway formation. No, no, no. I'm actually, I feel like with all that time underneath, I feel like more so what it is, is that I bet there's a nuclear warhead underneath there. That would be my conspiracy because I feel like... Spanish space. Make a website. All right. Thank you. Truly, directly, quickly, if you donate to our Patreon, you can help fund a conspiracy website for under <laughs> so the Denver it. International Airport. Totally worth it. Um, so DIA spokesman Chuck Cannon said in the Westward article when they were asking him about it, sometimes these conspiracies are fun to read about, but they're hokum. They just don't hold water. And the people who say they've been out here and worked on the project and saw this stuff being built are smoking something stronger than what they can buy at their local supermarket. That is an incredible story. Is there more? No, that's the whole story. So it's not really a story as much as I just wanted you to know a little bit about my hometown's airport, DIA. And next time you're traveling through there, I think you're going to be a little more cognizant of your surroundings Dear readers, thanks for joining us for another sweet-ass ep of your fave podcast. The truly. The darkly. The creepily. creepily. Thanks for coming, you guys, folks, ladies, gents, non-binaries, living your life. Lizard people, reptoids. Lizard people, reptoids, Illuminati. Aliens, Freemasons. The First Order Air... By the way, the First Order Airplane... That is a weird... Airport thing is weird. I don't love that There's weird stuff. There's some stuff that feels weirder than other stuff, but when you put it all together, it's a long list of stuff. There's a lot of stuff. Hey, did you know that in the world there's a lot of stuff? (laughs) 